this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with PSG Talking contributor Matt Gooding about the Three Lions. We discuss the parochial history of English football and how its impact is still felt today. We speak about the success of 66 and the weight of expectations that have crushed the national team ever since. From Sir Jeff Hurst to David Beckham, we cover it all. We bring you the highs and the lows from the birthplace of modern football. Can Britannia rule again? I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me as we explore the psyche and expectations of the British people. It's the Three Lions, here on the World Cup Project. Matt Gooding, welcome to the World Cup Project. Hi Mark, thanks for having me on. I'm very excited uh, to be here. Yes, and I'm happy to have you on because today we are going to talk about uh, the Three Lions, the English national team, a subject near and dear to your heart. And we're going to talk about a lot of things when it comes to the team. We're going to talk about the history. We're going to talk about the um, we're going to talk about the expectations. We're going to talk about the years of success, years of disappointment. We're going to go through a lot of things today. But before we begin, I just want you to introduce yourself to the audience. Some of them may be hearing you for the first time. Tell them a little bit about yourself, um, how you grew up in the game, and how you became a PSG talking contributor, and one of the more popular ones, I might add. Oh, thanks very much. It's very nice of you to say. Um, I think, um, so it's, you know, England's a bit different from other countries. Um, like we were just we were just talking off air about, about the US and how, how people sort of get into football, whereas um, over here kind of, yeah, most people just into it. So when you're a kid, you sort of start playing football and then sort of start following a team and it sort of goes on from there. So when I was a little boy, I started following Cambridge United, which is my local team in England. They're pretty much not very good. Um, they're in the, in the fourth division at the moment. We just finished our season in mid-table. So uh, that's not uh, not ideal, really. But um, anyway, I, so I sort of grown up uh, supporting them and supporting England, uh, obviously in the World Cup and the European Championships, and um, sort of more recently, um, my wife's from Paris. So when we got together in about 2004, um, I went over and I went to a PSG game, which was uh, I seem to remember quite a terrible game. It was against Caen, and it was one all, and the stadium was half full, and uh, it wasn't amazing. But I really enjoyed the experience, and I sort of started following PSG from then. And obviously, it's kind of uh, exploded in the Qatari era, the sort of interest, and I started tweeting and blogging about it. Um, and that's how I got involved in the in the PSG talk site and going on the podcast. So, so yeah, Cambridge, PSG, and England fan, which is possibly a unique combination, although I know another guy from Cambridge who is also a PSG fan, so we often chat on Twitter, which is a bit bizarre. And just to kind of go on to that Cambridge thing, you, you were born where in England? So I was born here, I was born in Cambridge and uh, grew up here, then it, I moved away, yeah. now I'm back. Exactly. So I, I, I bring that up and I sort of lead you into that to make the point that, and I think um, a lot of people who follow the English Premier League and the English game from the outside don't necessarily understand how the game is viewed in England when it comes to what team you support. Now, being from Cambridge, you support the local team. Now, the local team has not been in the Premier League, I don't think, and they probably haven't really been in the championship very often either. 
no, that's right. I mean, weirdly, the first year I started going there, they were in the championship. They were having an amazing run up through the divisions and we got into the playoffs and we nearly made it to the Premier League. And uh, pretty much since then, it's all been downhill. So, yeah, uh, I doubt we'll ever get that high again. Well, yeah, but and that's sort of the, the, the truth about English football in that sense, which is you root for the team from the city that you were born in. And just talk about sort of how that culture is like. Just sort of when you grow up, how you just sort of gravitate to obviously the team that you, the, the city where you're born. Just sort of that, yeah. that kind of mentality of no matter how bad the team is, you're going to root for the team in your city. Yeah, definitely, and I think that's really quite different to other countries. I mean, I'm not going to lie, where where we are, it's quite easy to get to Arsenal and Tottenham on the train. It's about an hour away down to London, and there are a lot of Arsenal and Tottenham fans, and obviously when I was growing up, there were a lot of Man United fans as well, because Man United were doing really well at the time. But at the same time, um, Cambridge United uh, get, for a team in the fourth division, we still get four, five, six thousand people going to watch every week, which is quite unusual for a fourth division team compared to other countries. I mean, in France, you'd be lucky if you got four or 500 people. So I think it is, there's definitely a sense of local identity, particularly um, in places where, you know, the football team can be the center, the sort of central point of the community. Um, in a lot of cities, um, it's not so much the case in Cambridge because it's quite a cosmopolitan place and it's quite a changing population. But I think in a lot of other places, even if the team's not very good, that's sort of the sort of the identity of the place and the sort of success or failure of the place can sort of ride on on how the team's doing and it can be a real a real sort of point where the community gets together and focuses on on one positive thing. So yeah, it's a it's definitely a very strong culture compared to compared to other countries, I think. Yeah, and that's born out of the idea that the English basically invented the modern game in the way that the modern game is played structurally maybe not sort of yeah and probably rules too but let's more talk about just sort of the structure of how deep english football is i think the last time i checked there's about 11 tiers like 11 uh basic professional tiers something along those lines and just sort of go into that how those teams got formed and how those you know how those teams became parts of the community yeah, I mean, goodness, there's, um, I mean, the English football pyramid is a bit like I was saying, because there's so much interest in it, like even going down, like into, so you can go, there's basically four professional divisions, including the Premier League, and then you go into non-league, and there's probably another sort of seven tiers in the pyramid. So like you say, very, very good research, 11, 11 tiers, really, where you've got semi-professional and professional teams. And I think, um, obviously, the sort of the rules were uh, sort of, or, the basis of the modern rules of football, you know, came from England, and um, weirdly, um, they were, they actually fought up uh, just down the road here from where I'm sitting right now in Cambridge because the um, the Cambridge University came up with the sort of basis of the the rules which were adopted by FA and blah blah. So uh, so that's quite a it's uh, quite opportune. We're actually having a sculpture unveiled uh, next week, or it will have happened by the time this goes out. I think uh, to, to to commemorate it. It's a very lovely piece of public art that's costing <laughs> like two hundred thousand pounds. But um, anyway, um, yeah, I think um, you know because of because this was where the where the game originated. The the sort of the clubs and um, 
the big clubs, even the, sort of at the top of the pyramid to this day, you sort of um, think people like Arsenal and Aston Villa and clubs like that, you know, they were around at the very beginning and um, it sort of football kind of gravitated out from there sort of thing. So I think those, um, as I said, you know, previously, I think um, there was always this m- massive interest in the game. There's always been massive crowds in this country and I think that's how so many teams got formed just because people wanted to have their own team representing their area. And after, um, and then just want to put this for reference, the first ever English FA Cup was uh, contested in the year 1871, which is six years after the American Civil War. So <laughs> just, just to give everyone a time frame, the Football League began in 1888, which again, 12 years before the turn of the 20th century. So England, English football is approaching 150 years old. In, the, in its more sort of modern form, if you want to call it that. And I kind of want to ask you a psychological question. Because I think this sort of gets to the, um, to the kind of the heart of British identity and how British people and English people view the game. Do you feel like the English have sort of an idea that they... And I wouldn't say own, because own is a strong word, but there's a... The game... As we know, it was invented in England. Do you feel like the English people have a sort of pride and ownership in this game that has sort of, in many ways, outgrown that sort of parochial uh, beginning that it had that 130, 140 years ago? Um, yes, <laughs> that's an excellent question and one which I'm probably not um, <laughs> qualified to answer, but it. it, it in briefly, yes, I think that I think that traditionally um, there's definitely been a lot of sort of uh, nostalgia and sort of rose-tinted sort of viewing of the past as sort of being relevant to the present. I think that's definitely true, and I think that's true in wider British culture. We won't go on to Brexit because it'll make me really angry um, because it's stupid. But that's another uh, show. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a whole other genre of podcast. But, um, you know, that's something which is born out of sort of looking at the past and thinking that Britain's great because we did a load of stuff in the past. And I think there's definitely been that tendency in football, possibly not so much, I think, because we've been so terrible uh, for the last few years, um, which I'm sure we'll come on to later. Um, I think maybe people are getting a bit more realistic about our place in the world of football, but I certainly think for a long time, the fact that we invented the game was um, it was a big a big thing which sort of you know overshadowed the national team and there was definitely a heightened expectation because you know you know this is our game and you know we should be going going abroad and showing people how to play it basically um, it's I mean I worked for the FA briefly uh, and it certainly pervades um, in that organisation still um, there's definitely a sort of sense of pride and a sense of sort of history which you know it's not that is something to be celebrated but it's also not something that you should just sort of wallow in so I think maybe we've got a bit more of a nuanced view on it now but I definitely think in the last sort of certainly when I was growing up it was definitely a very strong sort of sense of pride and sense of you know football owes us something because you know we invented it. Talk about sort of and this is going to be a loaded question but talk sort of about English imperialism and they, the English imported a lot of things to, uh, well, it's not imported. They exported a lot of things. 
And one of the things they exported was the sport of football. They exported it to the rest of Europe, and then the Europeans kindly exported it to the rest of um, the rest of the world. They exported it to Africa, they exported it to South America, they exported it out to Asia, whatever land that uh, Europe and to an extent the English could get their hands on, they were playing football. The missionaries yeah. are playing football, the people who conquered are playing football, and the local people sort of pick up on that. And it's a fun game, and they enjoy playing it, and they start creating... Um, they start creating clubs, and those clubs start to form, and they start creating leagues, and the game grows in that way, essentially based on the British model that was created in the 1880s, in the 1870s. Talk yeah, about right. sort of that idea of the British importing this... Ex I keep mixing up import and export. They're <laughs> exporting this game, and how it sort of come back to... Well, now that we've exported this thing, everyone else is kind of better than we are. You know, Brazil has five World Cups, Germany has four, Argentina has two, you know, that, that psychology. And I think that sort of, I think that's an interesting thing, if not to go into depth on, just something to sort of touch briefly. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, I think that's a wider, I think it's a wider problem of English culture is that we're very... We're quite inward looking, and we sort of look back on our, our sort of our, our colonial history, as you say. It's quite a, it's not something that we should be particularly proud of, but um, I think it's something that people refer back to quite a lot. Um, and um, you know, I think the, I think we're quite because we're an island country. I think we have a tendency to be a little bit inward looking, and I think certainly with when it comes to football, I think quite often we've seen um, foreign countries, other countries doing it better than us, you know, having better technique and better, you know, uh, or better organisation or what have you. And we sort of just double down on our Englishness and the qualities which we can bring, which is uh, a lot of hard work and running around and looking passionate and things like that. I think there's certainly been that tendency in the past uh, with the teams themselves and also with the supporters to sort of demand that kind of, kind of very sort of, you know, enhanced Englishness, as it were, um, and I think hopefully we're sort of getting out of that cycle now and we're sort of coming into the modern world a bit. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly been a problem that, uh, you know, we've exploited the game. And I think even, you know, you're talking about the sort of the very ancient past, but I think even more recently you sort of, there were a lot of pioneering British coaches who went abroad, like Vic Buckingham, who, you know, um, went to Ajax and Barcelona and was very influential on people like Cruyff and, uh, and Renus Michels and people like this. So there's a lot of English guys like who have gone and sort of who have gone and spread the game. And I think um, again, as I said earlier, I think that is something to be celebrated. But I think for too long we've sort of uh, sort of rested on our laurels and looked inward. Um, and sort of hopefully now in the last few years and the way the sort of player development and things like that are going, we're starting to sort of be a bit more open-minded and uh, yeah. yeah, hopefully a bit more modern. And just quickly before we kind of move into the English national team, just sort of talk about the differences between, let's say, the south of England and the north of England. Is there sort of, even in England, sort of different styles of football that you tend to see? Is there sort of the different mindsets depending on where you go? Um, I think I think at the level that uh, where I go and watch football in Division 4, I think that's certainly true, um, that, you know, the... <laughs> It's a 
bit of a sort of, it always goes into these stereotypes of like, if you go to the north, it's going to be really difficult sort of physically and the weather's going to, because obviously the weather in the north of England is typically a bit worse than it is in the south. I mean, there's not much in it, but yeah, there's always this stereotype that if you go up north, then it's, uh, you're going to have a really tough physical game and it's going to, it's going to be really difficult. Whereas the uh, sort of southern teams are sort of more the sort of, uh, you know, the, they're sort of strutting around and trying to do nice passing and blah, blah. I think in the Premier League, I think it's less, um, I think there's, you don't really get that because the teams are, you know, predominantly made up of players from abroad and you sort of lose that real, um, that sort of, that sense of identity within the team. But that's not to say that teams still don't have strong identities. I think, you, you know, you look at Liverpool, for example, getting to the European Cup final and I think, um, I think their sort of, their pedigree in the European Cup is definitely something which, you know, shows through in their performances of, of the current team, you know, so I think there are strong identities, but I don't think, I don't think at the top level you get those real regional differences, whereas in the sort of lower divisions where they're mainly English players, maybe you get a bit more of that being, being pronounced sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted you to kind of clarify. So let's go into the World Cup for uh, the early part of the World Cup. So from 1930 to 1938, that was... Three World Cups that they did not enter. 1950. We're just we're being completist, so we'll run through a little bit of these. 1950, they got to the group stage. Is is this just an opportunity for you to you know uh, reflect on the fact that we lost to the USA? No, I didn't even mention that. You brought it up. Um, 1954, they got to the quarterfinals. 58, the group stage. 62, the quarterfinals, and then we get to the magical year 1966. The World Cup was held in England, and the English national team, for the first and possibly only time, we'll see about that, um, won a World Cup. Um, they got through the first group. They topped that group, which included Uruguay, Mexico, and France. They got into the quarterfinals. They beat Argentina 1-0. They beat Portugal 2-1 in the semis. And they beat West Germany in extra time, 4-2 at Wembley Stadium, at the old Wembley Stadium, obviously, to win the World Cup. Matthew, talk about that team and that kind of, the history of it. Because again, obviously, if you're an English soccer fan, you know the legends, you know, you probably know some of the names. And it's a, it's a, it's at this point now where it's starting to fade even more and more into the past. But just sort of talk about that team and the the legacy that it left and sort of if national teams in the future or national teams after that sort of chased that 66 ghost. Yeah, um, they definitely did. Um, that's it, You know, it's, well, first of all, I think it's left an enormous sort of uh, legacy over English football. I think certainly when I was growing up, you know, it always, every time there was a World Cup or European Championship, like, oh, can we emulate the boys of 66 and blah, blah. And you say sort of, you know, you might know some of the names of the team. I think, I mean, I think I'm not alone in my generation. So I was born like da, 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 30 years after it happened. I can probably name the whole team. They're that sort of, they're that high profile still, the, you know, the ones who are still with us. So I think it's been a big sort of, um, it's been a big weight around the national team's neck, if it were, because, you know, I think our media has the tendency to sort of uh, exaggerate our um, 
place in the football world, possibly for a lot of the reasons we've already discussed. And I think the sort of 1966 World Cup for a long time was sort of the, uh, you know, part of that sort of narrative that, oh, we won it in 66, this time we won it again. You know, it was 30 years ago. Um, it was 40, you know, when the anniversaries come around, it's like, oh, can we do it again? Sort of thing. It's like, oh, we probably can't. Um, so I think it's been a big millstone, I can imagine, for the for the players because they do always tend to sort of come under a lot of pressure and expectations to all seem to get raised when we come into a tournament and you'll see the sort of be replaying the you know 66 final or they'll be interviewing the guys on TV or what have you um, I think the other thing which it did was sort of uh, give us a sort of false impression that we were rivals with Germany because obviously we beat Germany in the final yeah. um, and there's a lot of sort of there's a, there's a lot of sort of jingoistic sort of sentiment um, often when we play Germany because of the Second World War etc etc yeah. and I think um, I think because we beat them in that one game I think the the English sort of took that to mean, oh yeah, we're the great rivals of Germany now, whereas in fact that's our only World Cup and like Germany sort of routinely get to the final and win it and stuff. So I think we think they're our rivals because of that one game yeah. 40 years ago or nearly 50 years ago. Is it? I don't know. Long yeah, and, that, and you, mentioning, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. you mentioning Germany and England just kind of brings me back to that Faulty Towers episode where Basil Faulty is <laughs> talking about yeah. not mentioning the that's war. Right. <laughs> but I yeah, I mean, that, I think that that's so iconic because it's so sadly reflective of uh, how English culture was for a long while. It's hopefully a bit different now. I mean, that's, uh, but even <laughs> yeah. so, even like when I was growing up, which isn't that long ago, it was sort of all, like that kind of stuff was, you know, kind of yeah. commonplace sort of thing. If, if yeah, you've never but, seen that, watch it. It's it's iconic. It's amazing. Yeah. It's just absolutely yeah, it's, amazing. Um, some of the... Uh, key players in that game, Bobby Moore, the captain, center back, Alan Ball, Martin Peters, Jeff Hurst, the only player to score a hat trick in a World Cup final. Just talk about the type of, I guess, legends that these types of players became in English football as time went on and sort of, you beat your rock stars in the 60s and now, I mean, some of them are not with us, but the ones that are, they have to be revered in sort of the same way that American sports fans revere um, revere Willie Mays or revere um, those types of iconic yeah. athletes. The same way yeah. Brazil admires Pele or the same way Argentina. I guess Maradona's kind of knocked himself down a peg with his antics, but you get you get the idea. I don't think the Argentinians care what Maradona does. I don't think he can do anything which will uh, yeah. take him down in their estimation. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I mean, those guys, they always get wheeled out. I mean, some of them have been more um, successful in their post-1966 career than others. I mean, Bobby Charlton, you mentioned there. I mean, he's, you know, one of the greatest players ever for Manchester United, which is the biggest team in England. And, you know, he's been their director there and blah, blah. So I think he's quite still quite high profile and, some of them have been managers to um, sort of lesser and greater degrees of success, but I think they're still they're still there, and you know, uh, or rather, a lot of them are still there, and they're still you know called upon when the when England play and when the World Cup's on. You know, they'll be doing promotional things or they'll be interviewed in the media and stuff. And yeah, I mean, as I said to you, I think even though it happened like thirty years before I was born, I can probably name the whole team. So that's the sort of that's the level of, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I think. If you asked a lot of people, they would be able to name the majority of the team, and I think those guys are—they're still very much in your public consciousness. And when you know one of them falls on hard times or they're not very well, it's real. It's you know it's quite a big story. So 
th- that's the sort of they're probably like some of the biggest names I mean certainly you know Bobby Moore's no longer with us sadly but you know I think people would look back on him as sort of you know maybe the greatest ever footballer that the country's ever produced sort of thing um, just in terms of his sort of legend as being a captain and the World Cup winning captain and this great leader but also being a, a really terrific footballer as well so they do cast a long shadow and uh, hopefully we'll win the World Cup again one day and they'll you know there'll be some, some, new, some new heroes to join them yeah let's talk about the 70s because I find this to be fa- I find this to be fascinating so if you look at the years 1976 to 1982 there are six uh, European Cups England wins all of them they win seven of eight um, European Cups Liverpool wins one Nottingham Forest wins one Aston actually Liverpool wins four Nottingham Forest wins two Aston Villa wins one and during this time that these English teams were so, you know, dominant in Europe when you could say that England had the best players, if maybe not the best players, but they had some of the best players in the world. Their World Cup results do not match that. 74, they do not qualify. 78, they do not qualify. And in 1982, they were out in the second group stage. How does that happen? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is a pattern which has basically repeated itself in English football history since '66. Is basically the teams always sort of performed worse than the sum of its parts. I think that a lot of the problems are often that we try and squeeze in sort of play at these big name players who are sort of coming into the tournament either unfit or out of form, or they don't really fit into the sort of the way the manager wants to play. So. I'm thinking back um, to sort of Kevin Keegan. You're thinking, in, I think it was in the '82 World Cup where he was sort of, um, you know, they they rushed him back into the team because he was like, you know, best player in Europe or what have you. But he wasn't fit and uh, didn't work very well. So I think that's kind of a pattern that repeats itself because of the the ex- level of expectation and the level of media coverage. We sort of we tend to get hung up on these sort of feel like talismanic players, these big names, yeah. sort of big celebrity players, and you know. It, they, we sort of hang our hat on that and they have to be going to the team even if they're not really fit or they don't work with what the coach wants to do so I think there's a lot of sort of I think there's a lot of sort of you know problems which have which have dogged English football f- for years and I think in that period it was probably probably the same as sort of they sort of yeah, and it's, collapsed yeah. under the weight of expectation and sort of uh, you know unrealistic sort of uh, ideas of, uh, of supporters and, and the media and it's strange because there, it's not always, but there's usually is a, co- a correlation between the strength of a domestic league and the strength of the teams in it and their quality of players in World Cups. You look at the Dutch. The Dutch won. The Dutch never won a World Cup, but you always felt like they had strong teams in that in that time period when they were, you know, dominating uh, European football in the 80s. You talk about Spain in the 2000s when Barcelona really took off. You saw Spain's national team really take off as well. And in 2013, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund are in the Champions League final facing each other in the year after Germany's winning the World Cup. So maybe it's not necessarily causation, but there's definitely 
tends to be a correlation. And during that time, it just it didn't seem like the domestic success of of these English teams really mattered all that much. How strong do you feel that the those domestic leagues were at that time? I think that the the problem is that the English league a lot of what it um, a lot of what it prided itself on at the time a lot of the very physical sort of uh, fast it's, you know qualities which are still present in the Premier League today the very fast paced sort of um, high energy high intensity possibly not that high quality um, football was really what um, what brought a lot of the teams sort of success and that's a lot of what has been at the core of English football you know for well forever basically and I think uh, possibly that didn't translate as well onto the sort of international level where the team you know at that time international football was the pinnacle of football right not like you might say now the Champions League is the pinnacle and international football maybe not so much but I think at the time the you know the sort of the teams that we'd have been coming up against just um, in terms of technical quality and um, variety of play possibly had a bit more than England you know um, so whereas those club teams because they were playing together every week they could make that sort of very English style work in a or very British style rather because Liverpool the great Liverpool team very reliant on the on the Celts and the Scottish the Welsh and the Irish but um, that very you know I think there's a very distinctly British style of the time and I think those great teams could definitely sort of make that work because they were playing together every week but maybe for England it didn't translate as well and possibly still doesn't translate as well. In 1986 the English national team made it to the quarterfinals and in 1990 they made it to the semifinals and lost to West Germany in a penalty shootout. Talk a little bit about the 1990 team. Yes, so the 1990 team are remembered quite fondly because that's the, so basically apart from the 66 World Cup, I think that, that's the best result we've ever had to get into the semi-finals. Um, and yeah, I think that's quite. I think it's quite a good example of uh, the sort of the problems that the, uh, you know the England team faces because after the first couple of games, they didn't do that well in the in the group stage, and um, there was a lot of. I mean, before the tournament, the, there was a lot of pressure on the manager. Bobby Robson, he was very unpopular. Um, I can't really remember why, but the, the papers were all out to get him, basically. Um, and, um, so they started quite badly in, in their group, I seem to recall, excuse me. And, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of you know, moaning and gnashing of teeth for, you know, England, the rubbish and blah, blah. And then they sort of had a bit of a, a formation change. They started to play with a sweeper, which was quite the in thing at the time a bit of a more continental approach and suddenly it's like oh look we're, we're not that bad and we beat, um, beat Egypt and then we on we went into the sort of knockout games and um, you know it was quite an exciting tournament for, for, for an English fan um, I think we you know some real sort of uh, they pulled a few results out of the bag and got to the semi-finals but um, and then lost on penalties to Germany like we always do <laughs> uh, I think it was quite indicative of the fact that we were sort of we started the tournament very in a very sort of English mindset, a very sort of uh, you know four four two, and we'll you know get it wide and cross the ball in and hopefully score a goal. But then um, when that didn't go to plan, Bobby Robson, who was a great manager, he sort of had the sort of sense to to change things around to sort of try and play the other teams at their own game, be a bit more expansive. And you know the results were, were obvious, so we you know we nearly got to the final. So I think that's quite a it's quite an iconic tournament um, in a lot of ways in this country because. You had the whole Paul Gascoigne situation where he um, 
who basically got a yellow card in the semi-final, which would have meant he was out of the final. And he, you know, Gaza was the he was like the driving force of that team. He'd sort of he was a young player. He was really on the up, and he'd come into the team and you know been one of the stars of the tournament. And um, when he got his yellow card, he just burst into tears. And I think a lot of people use that moment as the sort of the birth of modern football because it's sort of people who weren't invested you know English football up to that point had been kind of dogged by hooliganism and crowds were really low and it wasn't you know, it was quite sort of associated with violence and you know in the far right and stuff and um, I think at that point it was when football sort of started to hit the, the wider consciousness again and it became cool to be a football fan and sort of then the Premier League started and it all sort of snowballed from there so yeah. I think the yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of a watershed moment for the English team, for sure. Yeah, and I want to get to that. Um, I'm going to get to that next, but I want to take a small little detour into something that you kind of mentioned in passing, but I want to kind of get more into, which is the media, the English media's relationship to its national team and the <laughs> players. Yes, I know. I, I, I'm setting you up for it. Um, just and as an outsider, as somebody who as a kid, watched a whole lot of English television on uh, PBS in America and sort of absorbed that, absorbed that sort of British dark humor, sort of um, chipper dourness, if you want to call it that, sort of waiting for the sky to fall, waiting for the other shoe to drop, whatever cliche you want to use. And sort of, it seems different that, it's a different relationship than, let's say, Brazil's media will have with its national team or let's say a South American uh, media would have with its national team in that when those teams lose, they get angry and they, you know, they're looking for people to blame. But I think in Britain, it's more derision and sort of mocking as opposed to like genuine sort of anger and you know what I mean? Like uh, you can speak to it more, but it's, it's that style of, well, of course they're going to lose, and why we ever thought they were going to win, it's ridiculous that we ever thought they were going to win in the first place, but now we get to make fun of these people that um, were in the World Cup and didn't do their jobs, and, you know, we can kind of make them into punchlines for a little while. Just sort of talk about that relationship a little bit. There's definitely an element of that. I remember, like, the first, so the first World Cup campaign where I was properly invested in the England team was the the qualification for 1994, um, which uh, you might remember obviously was in the US and uh, we didn't make it. We failed to qualify out of a group with Holland, which obviously no, uh, you know, no uh, shame in, you know, finishing behind Holland, but we also finished behind Norway, which uh, there definitely is shame in finishing behind Norway. And um, I remember when we didn't qualify uh, the Sun, one of the most awful tabloids we have, and we have a lot of awful tabloids, um, they turned the manager's head into a turnip and uh, it was called Graham Taylor and they called him Turnip Taylor and there was a big picture of a turnip on the back page with his face on it. Mm-hmm. So that's to, that gives you a kind of flavour of the sort of the treatment the England team gets from the from the media. Um, again, it's sort of calmed out. I think it's a little bit less hysterical than it used to be. Um, but certainly there's been a lot of kind of, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's like gentle mocking. I think that's a bit, I think that's a bit kind to the um kind to some of the papers to say that it's that but I think there's definitely a um, I think they definitely like to knock down the England stars I think just in general they quite like to have a go at footballers because they're rich and um, yeah. it, you know it's a bit distasteful if you ask me but you know whatever um, 
Yeah, so I think the, the relationship's a bit complicated because before the World Cup or European Championships, it always goes mental with, oh yeah, England are amazing, we're going to win and, you know, cut out your St George's mask or whatever, all this absolute nonsense. <laughs> and then as soon as we lose a game, it's like, oh my gosh, these are, this is the worst team ever. Who are these idiots? You know, what on earth are they doing? So I think there's definitely a mocking element, but I do think there's a bit of a more sinister element to it as well. I don't like the sort of tone of the the sort of coverage which often particularly in the in the tabloid press um gets very jingoistic uh especially in the build-up to the tournament so it's a very complicated relationship it's yeah. not as bad as it used to be but certainly there's usually a lot of mocking of the manager particularly the manager he's usually the lightning rod but often the players as well you think there's a bit of a dehumanization that kind of happened with that too in that um if you if you don't sort of see them as um, flawed human beings and see them more as um, proxies or you know stocking horses to get um, to get mocked, because American sports is different than that, and there's a mixture. You still have you you have contrarians in American sports, but you know in American sports media, but it's not the same sort of like here's this guy, you know, here's our, here's our tops, you know, here's our top athlete. We're going to mock him. <laughs> We're going to yeah. have a go at him. Like you don't see yeah. that. You don't see that with LeBron James that much. You don't see it with not, not from like respected media. I mean, yeah, just, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I think, no, I think you're, I think you've, you're on the money there. I think, um, it's, basically as soon as you become a famous footballer particularly if you play in the England team you'll just fair game for whatever and they take quite a lot of relish in sort of or a lot of I mean, it's unfair to stereotype the entire English press like this but it's you know a sizable a sizable chunk of it will take relish in you know the misfortunes any misfortunes of an England particularly an England player most Premier League players to be fair be that in their personal life or on the pitch or what have you so yeah I definitely think there's an unhealthy culture of sort of just wanting to knock down uh, anyone, well, anyone in the public eye really in this country, but particularly particularly football is a fair game, I think, because they're often, they're wanting to make a sort of broader political point. I think it's basically because they're often lower class men who have come into a lot of money. And I think there's a certain sort of, there's a sort of jealous tone to it in a way, as if it's sort of like looking down your nose as if, how dare you have, you know, how dare you have got rich, basically, because you know yeah. you don't deserve a, a witch is really really sad but unfortunately I think even to this day with the treatment particularly of ethnic minority players like you see some of the stories about Raheem Sterling who tends to bear the brunt of this for no obvious reason you know you get ridiculous things like you know it's a story that he's bought a house for his mum or something you're like who cares what what is the matter with you you awful people so I think there's definitely that that culture of uh of, of knocking footballers and yeah like you say exactly it's very weird because I don't think in other countries I don't think they're so keen to uh to to make their you know the best players look like idiots yeah and let's, let's go into the birth of the Premier League and I'll give it a little background um the late 1980s as you alluded to were not very good for English football the uh top flight teams were banned from European competitions because of the um because of the the Heisel. the Heisel, yeah, the Heisel Stadium, and then a few years after was Hillsborough, which I think was in '92, yeah. something like that. So you have yeah, the 90s, yeah. you have hooliganism, you have um, you know, it, it's um, 
to describe it. It's like football became a very sort of low-class form of entertainment. And you have this sort of the... Um, I guess, yeah, I guess that's how you would describe it. The lower the lower classes of English society who would kind of go to these games with, you know, the stereotypical uh, bottle of alcohol in the plast- in the paper bag and watch the teams play and if you you know, if you've ever watched keeping up appearances, you have the you have the guy sitting on the couch with the with the the sweat-stained shirt and like like that was I, I if I remember right, that was sort of the stereotype of sort of you know, low-class, you know, 80s, 90s English person. And I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying your cultural references. This is amazing. I can't believe that Keith Enough Appearances made it to the uh, US. 8 o'clock's on Saturday. Eight o'clock, <laughs> it used to be on 8 o'clock on Saturday. It was that, and then as time goes by. Yes, amazing. So you we got, we got enough of that in the you. 90s where I, I watched a bunch of those. But yes, um, but eventually the top flight teams in England decided that they sort of wanted to split away from the FA to a degree and sort of turn around this, um, this sort of downward spiral that the FA was going through for various reasons. And they decided to create their own sort of league above the FA that worked with the FA, but was, owned by them and they could sort of control the television rights and with sort of the explosion of cable television and I'm not necessarily sure how that worked in England in the 90s because obviously I wasn't there but just sort of talk about the birth of the Premier League and how that changed in a lot of ways changed everything yeah, it certainly did. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating subject, and I think um, you can argue whether it's been a good thing or not, the Premier League, but I think in isolation it's certainly been a success in its own, um, you know, its own right. I mean, it's obviously, it's, you know, the most popular league in the world, and, you know, it's got the biggest sort of television rights, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, money paid for it in the world, and, you um, certainly been uh, they've done a great marketing job that's for sure but I think for English football it was not necessarily a great thing to be honest because you know in terms of if you look at the England if we're looking this through the prism of the England team um, I think that the creation of the Premier League pulled all the wealth at the top of the game and you mentioned cable TV I think it's Sky TV are the, are the company that are mainly associated with the Premier League in, in the UK. It's one of Rupert Murdoch's companies and um, Premier League football basically saved them. They were heading for oblivion and um, they sort of had this sort of, uh, you know, bright idea, oh, we'll try and bid for, we'll try and get the Premier League from the start and they managed to get in there and um, it's basically propped up their entire business model ever since, since 1992. So that's how important it's been, you know, to them and to, and to the sort of, uh, the cable TV market um, is, you know, football rights are one of the most hotly contested things. But I think um, going back to the Premier League itself, I think it's it's certainly been a success. As I say, it's a, it's a great product. Um, it's full of amazing players and managers. But unfortunately, most of them come from abroad. And I think the UK economy is largely built on service industries, mainly financial services. And I think the Premier League is another example of us providing a service because the main thing which we bring to the Premier League is that the sense of history that we've talked about and also 
in the sense that people in the UK are great spectators. We love going to things. If any event which is hosted here, you know, be it the Olympics or, uh, you know, any kind of, um, you know, uh, world championships in any sport, it'll always be really well attended, even by people who don't necessarily like that sport very much. We just like going to things for some reason. And I think a lot of that's reflected in the Premier League success because you've got the history of British football or English football rather, and you've also got really massive crowds, really massive, passionate, noisy crowds. You've got people going to away games in their thousands, which you don't have in, in Liga, for example. So I think we put all that stuff, but the actual product on the pitch, you know, it's it's just the best players from around the world and the best managers from around the world. So in terms of the England team, it's been definitely a negative thing in my view because young English players, unless they're really, really amazing, have a lot more difficulty in breaking through to those top clubs and the top clubs have less of an interest in developing them because they need ready-made big-name stars that can go into their team and make an impact so that they can survive in the Premier League. So it's a really complex issue and um, I don't really, I mean I love watching the Premier League like everybody else. I always watch you know Match of the Day and blah 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 and you really get drawn into all the storylines so I'm not going to say sit here and you know hold my nose and say oh, it's an awful sort of capitalist project which has, you know, destroyed English football. But at the same time, you have to say it's not been an entirely positive uh, thing for the country, particularly for the England team. Well, and um, just based on the results, at the be- kind of the beginning and the genesis of the Premier League, you would say that they kind of ran into a pretty good run honestly in the sense that you had a quarter you had a round of 16 in 98 you had a quarter final in 2002 and you had a quarter final in 2006 so that also coincided with a certain i guess i think the term golden generation is overused <laughs> but yeah. you had a list of really solid good players at that time the, the ones, obviously, that popped to your mind are Steven Gerrard and and um, David Beckham. Obviously, the first two you'd think of. And in a lot of ways, they were the first two, I guess, international British stars in that sense. When, they, when the Premier League started to really distribute their rights and get into other countries, which is something that was unheard of in the 70s and the 80s, you would have these sort of, you know, these worldwide stars now playing for your English national team like Gerard and Wayne Rooney later on and um, specifically yeah, David or, yeah, yeah. And specifically David Beckham and you look at the European championships during that time they made it to the semifinals in 96 the group stage in 2000 and then the quarterfinals in 2004 so just talk a little bit about that sort of time period, because I find it fascinating in that it's really the first time where top British footballers really kind of became worldwide celebrities, as opposed to maybe the Brazilians who kind of were worldwide celebrities like Pele or Maradona or even Zinedine Zidane. This was really the first era where the British game sort of was being exported through television which is a much easier way to export something than going on ships. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. Yes. So just again, talk about that time and sort of how, and I think that's really the most transformative time. And as an outsider, in that this was the first time where the game, where the where 
England really produced stars. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd have loved to have seen David Beckham going on a ship to the US for like a few weeks, just having to sit in the hold and uh, wonder how he would have coped. would have been quite amazing, I think. But anyway, um, yeah, I think the other thing to say, you know, when I was having my rant about the Premier League before is that English players aren't very good travellers typically, so we don't go and play abroad like the French do or the Italians or the Spanish. We tend to just stay at home because... We're not very good at speaking other languages and we're a bit of an island nation and we don't like all that foreign stuff. It's changing a bit now, but I think that's that was the other problem of the sort of early Premier League or pre-Premier League um, days is that you know, the English players don't, if they can't get the opportunity at home, they won't go abroad. So they don't, not only do they not get a chance at a top club, but also they don't get that profile like, like a Zidane or a, or Maradona or whoever, so you're you're absolutely right. That sort of the the television revolution of the of the Premier League definitely contributed to the profile. Um, it also contributed to the fact that I think. So this is the sort of this is the era of players which I remember as I was growing up, like when I was a teenager, and then like you know when you could go and watch the game at the pub and blah blah. And I remember going to watch the. I think 2002 World Cup, you know, all the early kickoffs in the morning, you could go to the pub at like 7am and have a pint and uh, it was all like all, all, all good fun stuff. But I think the sort of the general way people would look back on that, that team is one of sort of unfulfilled potential because we had all those great guys you name off, Beckham, Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Paul Scholes, Owen, Rooney, etc. Even like sort of Alan Shearer towards the end of his career and we never really got near to winning anything I think we went to a quarter final you know in 2002 and probably should have beaten Brazil because we were one nil up and they were down to 10 men for like the whole of the second half and we still couldn't so we went one nil up and then we went 2-1 down and then there the man sent off and we had a whole 45 minutes against 10 men and we couldn't score and we didn't even really look like scoring so I think that's probably that was probably so this was when um, we had all those players you mentioned that inverted commas golden generation I mean I really hate that phrase it's absolute nonsense they literally did nothing to deserve that uh, sort of uh, that silicoy sort of thing but um, I think that was probably the peak for them because after that they sort of just stagnated a bit and we kept getting to the quarterfinals sort of unconvincingly uh, but never sort of looking like going any further and it just seemed a bit of a unfulfilled potential because individually like you say the the players were really big stars, you know, some of the best in their positions in Europe. You even look at someone like Ashley Cole, who was a great left-back, uh, you know, probably one of the best in the world at the time. So you've got, like, players who are sort of all through the team who are, you know, Rio Ferdinand, Sol Campbell, etc. at the back as well. Uh, but we never really made the most of it. And I think it goes back to that thing of always wanting to shoehorn all the big stars into the detriment of the team. So particularly this was the case in midfield, I think um, you'd have like Lampard, Gerrard and Paul Scholes, say, and we'd be like, well, rather than sort of pick two of them and come up with a formation to suit that, we're just like, well, we need to play all three of these guys, so we'll just put Scholes on the wing. And it's like Scholes, you know, one of the best like passing midfielders in Europe and he'd be shoved out on the wing where he couldn't do anything. Or like we'd play Lampard and Gerrard together in central midfield who clearly you don't have complementary skills you know what I mean it was just absolute ludicrousness but this was always the sort of the narrative around it oh we need to find a way to get Gerard and Lampard to play together when it was obvious that you know you just pick one pick one or the other we don't need to have them both in the team you know the the best 
players don't always make the best team, do they? And I think that's the that was the problem of the England generation of the time was that we always tried to, the manager always tried to get all the best players into the team, and then you never had a really functioning team, and they did okay because they were good players, but when it came to the sort of the big matches, they always kind of disappointed. Yeah, and. After that sort of run, um, England kind of hit a, um, let's say, a skid. Um, 2008, they do not qualify for the European Championships. They were managed by, they were managed by Steve McLaren. He was promptly fired, and he was replaced by Italian Fabio Capello. And in 2010, in a what really should have been a pretty easy group for them to get through, if I'm being honest. They drew with the United States. They won that group. But uh, maybe you can tell me who they lost to in the round of 16. Uh, I've, had a, I've had a momentarily lapse of memory, and I don't want to remember it. Uh, it's all, it's okay. That's what, um, that's, what Wiki, that's what Wikipedia is for. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. We lost to Germany. Yeah. We got absolutely tonked. It was 4-1, I think. Yeah, and just, just to go through that group, there was... In, actually, never mind. They they were second in that group. They they tied the United States one one. That was the uh, that was the terrible goalie mistake. They drew <laughs> Algeria. They drew with Algeria, which is really hard to do. That that and, was honestly one of the worst games of football I've ever seen. And believe me, I watch a lot of crap football, but that was really really terrible. Anyway, I mean, it, at least they beat Slovenia one <laughs> nil. Yeah. Okay, so that was two thousand ten. 2002, they make it to the. 2012, they make it to the quarterfinals of the European Championships. Whoopee. Um, And then in 2014, they get knocked out in the group stage. Let's go through that group again. That was. uh, Let's relive that 2014 for a little bit, because this is. um, This is sort of a decline in English football over the span of about um, five to ten years. And just for reference, Fabio Capella was the coach. Through the 2012 European Championships, um, and then Roy Hodgson took over, and he was um, fired after the 2016 European Championships. Um, he was replaced by Sam Allardyce. That didn't go well. Um, so there's two parts to this. I kind of want to mention the managers for a really specific reason. Um, talk about the 2000 kind of 14 era where. England did not get through the group stage. And then just sort of also talk about the managers over the last sort of 10 years. And if you think that um, they were not, let's call them inspired hires. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that I think that's, that's, that's a polite way to put it, that they weren't inspired hires. I think that the, so we had Sven Goran Eriksson as manager in the 2000s uh, for quite a while you know through that whole sort of Beckham Gerard Lampard generation um and after that we've since then we've sort of been sort of oscillating wildly between sort of profiles of managers like we've we tried the sort of foreign option with, with Capello which didn't really work um I think the because he was you know obviously a great manager in his day but I think by the time he got to the England job he was just sort of 
there for a, a nice big payday and to do as little work as possible. Didn't even learn to speak English, which I think is a bit, yeah. you know, rude if you're the English national team manager sort of thing. So um, yeah, and just speaking of paydays, he now manages. He his last managing job was uh, Jiangsu Suning in the Chinese <laughs> Super League. So yeah, yeah, I get what you mean about um, about that. Hey. As equal of Etsy's in the Chinese Super League, so don't knock it. Um, it uh, there's little we're sort of dying. Hey, get paid, man. Get paid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think 2010 was where the sort of it was quite an, another watershed moment for for the England team. We talked about 1990, where English football sort of became really mainstream and you know cool again. And I think 2010 was another sort of big moment in the sense that I think we realised that we're not really very good and we sort of. I think there's a bit more widespread recognition of England's place in the world order, which is probably we can, you know, we can do well. But I think a good performance for us is getting to the last state, um, you know, to a quarter final. And I think if we do that in the World Cup, I think we should consider that a good performance. Whereas, as I said to you previously, there's always been this sense with the with the sort of Beckham generation that we'd get we regularly got to the quarterfinals, but we can never get any further. But now we're not really. We're not that team anymore. We're not that team that should be looking beyond that because, well, why would we? Like, we never have. We've only won the World Cup once. We've only been to one semi-final and the players we've got just aren't that good. So I think think Capello did a good job and the 2010 World Cup in sort of lowering expectations, which then continued into the into the next European Championships when Hodgson actually took over just before the tournament started because there was some kind of scandal with Capello. I forget what it was. It was quite boring. Um, but he had to resign or be fired or something and Hodgson took, sort of picked up the team and expectation was really low and they didn't do too badly. Like um, They got to the quarterfinals. They lost on penalties to Italy who were, who were quite good in that tournament. I think they got to the final, didn't they? Um, but then after that, Hodgson... Now, Hodgson's a great guy and I've got a lot of time for him. He's a really good manager and I think that in theory he's like the sort of manager we should have for the England team because he's quite urbane. He's managed abroad in Italy and, and other countries in Switzerland. He's done the Swiss national team before. So he's really sort of, he's a really English guy because he's like really old sort of and he talks like a proper old English bloke like this. And um, he, But he's got that sort of, um, yeah. sort of more worldview and a sort of uh, more well-travelled outlook but unfortunately it just didn't really work like as you said we went out in the group stage in 2014 we just weren't very good yeah and then let's go through that let's go through that just really quickly so the group was Costa Rica Uruguay Italy and England so England loses uh 2-1 to Italy there's really no shame in that that's a that's a game that can go either way um Then they lose 2-1 to Uruguay, which, again, they needed to win that game. By that point, they were pretty much already out of it. And then they drew yeah, against well, Costa Rica yeah. 0-0. That has to be one of the worst English performances. Um, that yeah. has to be, like, the nadir of English performances in World Cups. Like, not even being competitive. Getting one point, scoring two goals... I mean, that has to just be one of the low points in the history of English football. Yeah, I think so. And it's also the annoying thing about that was that, particularly in the Italy game, we were quite in it. It wasn't like, it was fairly even. It could have gone either way. But then we just weren't on the, we didn't really, 
I think Italy just sort of had a bit more sort of nous and a bit more sort of game intelligence than us, which was the frustrating thing because Hodgson's a real pragmatist. Like as a manager, he's very he's a, a guy who drills his teams really well. He notoriously sort of uh, some players find him quite boring because the nature of his training is very repetitive. But the point of that is he gets them really organised and. Um, is shown with his results. I mean, he's the, um, the Crystal Palace manager at the moment and um, they were absolutely a lost cause at the bottom of the Premier League when he took over and they're sort of now safe from relegation with about four games to spare. So, you know, he's a good guy and he should have been a good guy for England, bearing in mind what I said earlier, that we're sort of, the players we've got aren't that good really. <laughs> so, you know, you need a manager who can, who can drill a team and get them playing beyond the sum of their parts. But, in the tournaments, he just seemed to go completely to pieces and sort of, you, again, this sort of weight of expectation must have been a factor because he sort of, he went a bit mental, particularly in the um, in the last tournament in the Euros. He was playing all these strikers and being really attacking and it didn't really work for us, obviously, because we, we got exited in the um, in the second round by Iceland, which, uh, you know, is another nadir of uh, English international football. But um, even in the World Cup, I think he was... He'd been so, he'd shown himself to be so pragmatic and so like realistic in qualifying, and then he just sort of went a bit crazy. And we had you know Wayne Rooney playing on the wing, and uh, it was just all really weird. So yeah, I don't know what happens. I don't know what happened to him because it, he seems to completely lose it in both the tournaments that, or certainly the the latter two tournaments that he managed in. So that's kind of the point we're at now. We're at quite a sort of low point for the England team yeah. because, as I say, there was as you mentioned that. I think that probably is our worst performance in the World Cup going out in the group stage and then to follow that up by losing to Iceland, a country that's you know got about 20 professional footballers or something stupid, Do you know what I mean, relatively speaking, yeah. there's no way they should be beating England. So we go into this World Cup on the back of those two tournament performances and I think probably expectations were at an all-time low. Yeah, and after that uh, European Championship, Roy Hodgson was summarily sacked. So um, <laughs> that brings you to Allardyce, who had his little one game. He's the only England manager that will probably ever be undefeated in his career. So congratulations to Big Sam. And Sam to hang his hat on, yep. Yes, and they hired Gareth Southgate. And I want to kind of talk about this year and sort of what I've seen as a conscious shift in the way that the English national team is sort of being run right now. Recently, they have had a ton of success at the lower levels. I believe they won the under-20 World Cup last year. And they've, on their youth levels, have really been dominant in the last couple of years. So, theoretically, there's a pipeline of great young players coming into the English squad. Now, currently... There is not a single player that has um, played in the most recent uh, set of friendlies or in the last year who plays outside of English football. So, again, you talk about that sort of um, that sort of tribalism and that sort of uh, uh, home comfort. Every single one of these guys plays in England, and a lot of them play for Tottenham. A lot of them play for. Um, Liverpool, there's some Manchester City, they're they're sprinkled all over the Premier League. But in general, it's a young team. It's a team with maybe not the star power of past English teams. You don't you're probably not gonna see Wayne Rooney. There's no David Beckham type, there's no Steven Gerrard type. I guess Harry Kane comes the closest to that, 
but I feel like there's a conscious shift going on where England is maybe realizing that they're going to have to create a team that's sustainable, that maybe works a little harder, maybe digs a little deeper on defense. Um, there's talent. I wouldn't say it's a favorite to win the World Cup. I wouldn't even put them in the top. Um, i maybe put them in the top eight at eight. But to sort of talk about this England, which I feel like is a different England than the one we've maybe seen in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's a fair summary. I think top eight. Yeah, I think we're, I'd say we're a top 12 to top eight team, depending on, you know, the the team you end up, the opposition we end up playing and, you know, how informed our players are on the day. But I think that's definitely a fair assessment to say as well that it's, uh, it's quite a different sort of feel to the England team. I think Southgate's probably the, uh, the lowest profile England manager we've had for quite a while. I mean, it's quite interesting that he... So he missed the penalty in the Euro 96 semi-final. We played Germany and we got to semi-final again and uh, we got we lost to Germany on penalties. And um, it's interesting because you were mentioning the sort of mockery of, uh, of these of these public figures um, earlier and um, Southgate was very much, he became the sort of the figure of fun after that tournament because it was his penalty that knocked us out. And uh, I remember him doing a Pizza Hut advert with a, where he had a paper bag over his head because he was, you know, he didn't want people to see him in the restaurant and stuff. So, uh, so he's got he's got a, a rich history with the England team, and now he's the manager. He was the under twenty one manager before, so they sort of when Allardyce uh, did his thing, which we won't go into because you know legally dubious ground. Um, he. Uh, he stepped up and he's done okay. You know, the thing is that England always steamroller through qualifying at the moment. I think the last, even like back to 2010, so like we didn't qualify in 2008 European Championships, but ever since then, we've pretty much won our qualifying group every time, barely lost a match. So it's very difficult to know what level we're playing at because we always get drawn against these terrible teams who we're obviously going to beat, you know, unless something really weird happens. Um, but I think the current team is definitely quality all through. I just don't know that... I think midfield's the biggest problem area because we don't really have anyone who can sort of dictate play and sort of transform defence into attack. The only guy really is Jack Wilshire, who is, you know, problematic because of the you know, many injuries he's had in his career and probably not the player that everyone hoped he'd be sort of around sort of 2010, 2012. But... There's definitely some talent there. I think you look at sort of like Harry Kane, who you mentioned, although we're getting into the typical English thing that Harry Kane's coming to the end of the season, not in good form, just had an injury. And uh, it's sort of it's happened so many times where we've had like our, our most important player going into a tournament, either a bit injured or a bit tired. And uh, hopefully Harry Kane's going to pick up over the next couple of games, but certainly his recent performances haven't given much cause for optimism there. But I think he on form is obviously one of the best strikers in Europe. I think Sterling has come on a lot under, you know, working under Guardiola and was obviously a immensely talented player anyway. And then there's a lot of other guys like Marcus Rashford and uh, people like this. So there's definitely not only quality now, but there's definitely longevity in the team. And then looking into the age group teams, you know, none of those guys have quite made the breakthrough yet, but hopefully in the next few years, we're going to see that, sort of fruits of the work that's going on in the FA and um, I sort of mentioned earlier that I briefly worked for the FA and I think they are doing some good stuff in terms of 
how the young players are coached, um, trying to be a bit more modern and copy what other countries have done successfully, like Spain and Germany. So we hope we're starting to get English players coming through who have got much better techniques than has been in the past, where we've relied on our sort of physical qualities. And I think you see that in this England team again. So you know, to use Sterling or, or Rashford as the examples, you know, two guys who have got really brilliant techniques. You know, and I think we're gonna. That's the sort of pipeline of players we've got coming through in the young age group. But the problem's going to be whether, first of all, whether they can get into their Premier League teams, and second of all, whether they can continue to develop and become like world class players because they're going to become very rich very quickly basically they you know young players in England get paid a lot better than uh, anywhere else in the in in the world and I think that's a bit of the problem as well that sometimes they get a bit too complacent and um, this leads to some guys not fulfilling their potential and it'll be interesting to see whether these these young teams that we've been winning championships in the age groups can sort of make that step up and make the breakthrough into, into first team football and uh, into the England team. They're in an interesting group, too. They're in Group G with Belgium, Panama, and Tunisia. Now, you would think that they could get through that group. Panama's a little tricky, but they're not um, They're not world beaters. Neither are Tunisia. So, theoretically, England should be able to get through that group. Um, do you think they're as good as Belgium? Do you think they're on that level? I'm not... I don't think they are, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know, basically. Hello? You know, just, just, they've got quality all through the yeah. team, haven't they? They need to build them off. But um, you know, I think this is all, you look at the problem areas in our team, like, as I said, the midfield's not that great. They've got, like, you know, Hazard, Arbler, et cetera, et cetera. Um, probably our goalkeeper's not that good. We don't really, it's not clear who's going to be our goalkeeper for the tournament. You know, they've got Courtois uh, and there's just more, there's more quality in their squad. But what I would say is that, first of all, I think the schedule is, is playing into our favour this time, whereas it hasn't in the last, so like the 2014 World Cup we were mentioning, I think having Italy first was the worst possible because that was the hardest game of the three. And we had that first. And I think if you lose that, you're always on the back foot, whereas if we'd played Costa Rica first we might have beaten them and then it sort of changes the whole complexion of things so this time I really hope I'm not tempting fate here because England let you down all the time but they are playing the two easier in inverted commas games first so I think we'll go hopefully we'll go into that Belgian game with six points in the bag already and we can play with a bit of freedom and I mean I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that we'd beat Belgium because they're usually quite underachieving as well. And also Roberto Martinez is their manager, which is obviously they've not quite as bad a handicap as they used to have when Wilmots was their manager, but it's still quite a big handicap because Martinez is quite flawed to coach. You know, we know him quite well in England because he's coached in the Premier League. So um, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility, but I think it's likely we'll finish second in the group. Yeah. That's more, more yeah. And, with, regardless of whether they, they win or lose that group, they're going to play a team from Group H in the round of 16. So that could be anyone from Poland, Senegal, Colombia, and Japan, which may be one of the more um, wide-open groups in the World Cup, I think, this year. Because I could see all four of those teams making it, and I could see all four of those teams not making it through the group. So England very much, it might not matter if they finish first or second, in the sense that the, all those teams are so... Um, 
evenly matched, I think. Columbia might be the best one out of them, but I wouldn't say by all that much. So there's a chance that England can, I wouldn't say back their way, but they there's a chance that they could get to the quarterfinals of this World Cup. Now, do you think that can happen? Just if I had to put you on the spot here, do you think England can make, if you say that the quarterfinal is sort of the high mark of where England should be aiming for right now, do you think they can make that quarterfinal? Yes, absolutely. I think that, so realistically, as you say, that's quite an open group and I'm not going to confess to being across all those four teams, but it's most likely we'll play Poland or Colombia. I'd be pretty confident against Poland, less so against Colombia, but I think they're both winnable games if England play well. So, yeah, I think that definitely, I mean, we all do it, don't we? When the draw's made, we look at route to the final and blah, blah, and well, maybe Team USA fans don't do that this time but uh, we won't go into that but um, uh, yeah um, I looked at those games and I was like okay we could definitely do this we can definitely get to the quarter final and if we do that I'll be happy and then anything that happens beyond that is a massive bonus yeah and I think that's a good place to leave it off um, Matthew Gooding thank you for coming on the show um, plug your Twitter so that um uh, the people that are listening to this can follow you for your um, insight and wit and well, yeah. talk about sort of anything you may be working on in the future. Yeah. So um, yeah, follow me on Twitter at PSG tourist. Um, I mean, it, I don't want to overstate things. I'm not sure I can offer either insight or wit, but I will do my best. And if you need to want to know what Jeremy Menez is up to, then I'm always all over that. So, so definitely worth a follow. Yeah, and in case they're looking for your Twitter, it's the one with Edinson Cavani feeding the llama, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Someone sent me someone sent me a picture from his Instagram the other day of him patting a dog, so I might be changing that quite soon. It's yes. actually a goat that he's feeding, not a llama. Yes. Um, I think I should point out. Yes. And they can also listen to you whenever um, PSG Talking makes its triumphant return. You guys are busy men, but... Um, yeah, I, I always yeah. find you to be exceptionally um, good on that show. I think um, I, I think it. I like. I would say the first times I started listening to it, your sort of um, your sort of voice stood out to me. Uh, just sort of the way you approached it and sort of the tone of the show. I think you guys are kind of, especially certain groups of that. I think you guys are very. Um, I think you guys are very good, and I, it's one of the reasons why I started following. It's one of the reasons that um, we are where we are today with this World Cup project. And on another note, you uh, accidentally came up with the title for this show in a um, in a Slack chat that we had towards the very beginning. You called it a World Cup project. I like the name so much, so I took it. So yes. if you're wondering where the name came from, it is from this man right here, Matthew Gooding. That's right. And uh, when, this, when this goes international and... Uh you know, uh, the cash starts rolling in, Mark, don't worry, you'll be getting an invoice for my uh, my uh, creative work. I think we'll be getting cease and desists before we get <laughs> millions of dollars, so let's let's uh, let's hope it doesn't get too big. Um, so, um, for Matthew Gooding, this has been your World Cup podcast, uh, World Cup uh, project host, got the name wrong there, World Cup project host Mark Damon saying au revoir for now. for listening to the World Cup Project. Our final episode will feature PSG Talk contributor John Olonghi. 
in our extensive preview of the 2018 World Cup. Who's going to win in Russia? We'll let you know. The theme for the World Cup project is provided by the Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show is brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now.